As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Allocation Disorder, recording on a Friday morning this time. We're switching things up a little bit, Paul, because there's been a very, 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 very busy last, what, 14 hours, 15 hours of soccer, uh, two Gold Cup semifinals, U.S. national team beating Qatar 1-0 to advance to the final on Sunday in Las Vegas, where they will meet Mexico, who beat Canada 2-1 in Houston in a ridiculous match last night that was uh, i don't know i have a lot of questions but my main one is why can't mexico stop choking people um we can get into that in a little bit and then of course this morning the u.s women advancing past holland in the olympic quarterfinals after a penalty shootout so a lot of drama um Taylor and Joe and Jordan are going to have uh, a total soccer recap of that women's game, I believe, later on Friday. So stay tuned for that in your podcast feeds. We're going to talk a little bit about the U.S. men and their performance last night and what we've seen from them all Gold Cup and what we think about certain players and maybe a certain coach heading into World Cup qualifying, which is barely a month away now. We're also going to talk a little bit MLS. We've received some more details from the San Jose Earthquakes on their GM search. And so we're going to kind of debut maybe a recurring segment here. Um, uh, how would you fix San Jose? Uh, the San Jose part won't be recurring, but how would you fix fill in the blank might be. Uh, Paul, how would you fix me? I'm totally broken. I think, I think there's there's not enough time in this episode to go into maybe how next week to fix Sam Stay's goal. <laughs> Um, first off, I think we need to get me to a chiropractor, you know, because my bag is hurting from carrying this piano every week. <laughs> yeah, but it's like the fourth piano that you've had to start carrying because of the number of pianos you've dropped while yeah, attempting to ca- yeah, carry the piano. Yeah, because my back, man, it's killing me. <laughs> anyway, uh, U.S. national team, U.S. men's national team, one one zero against Qatar, they beat Jamaica 1-0 in the quarterfinals on Sunday, which was, you know, after we last recorded as well. So we can talk a little bit about that. I thought the games were pretty similar in some ways, not so in others, um, but similar in that the U.S. kind of struggled really like a lot in the first half of both, particularly against Qatar. They were lucky not to be losing at halftime um, in the semifinal. Matt Turner, goalkeeper, made some incredible stops to kind of bail the Americans out. In the first half, um, then, you know, in what, in around, right around the hour mark, Qatar missed a penalty, chipped it over the crossbar. Um, and that was a huge let off. Qatar really faded after that. Uh, US kind of 
grabbed some energy, grabbed some momentum, and grew more into the game. Some subs helped change the change thing, and and then Giassi Zardes got the goal in the 86 minute to win the game. But Paul, what what were your kind of you wrote a piece on it? But what were your overarching impressions from the semifinal? Yeah, well, I think first of all. You know, there are a couple players on this team who are veteran players who, who we don't talk about as much of this, this group because we, we were looking at some of the younger players who we thought might be able to emerge from this tournament, right? Like Matthew Hoppy and Daryl DK and Eric Williamson and Gianluca Busio. You know, guy, those were the kind of Miles Robinson, James Sams. Those were the guys we were looking at. And so I, I think it struck me that in the last two games, it's been Jossi Zardes and Christian Roldan who I think have changed the game for the U.S., um, and, and I think it's, it's a good thing, right? Like those guys are still fighting for jobs. They're still fighting to be a part of the World Cup qualifying team. And I think Jossie Zardes is making a real argument at, at a position where there isn't a clear starter, you know, to, to start up top. You can say all you want, but like Josh Sargent hasn't scored consistently up top. Daryl DK in games, um, we've seen now two straight knockout games hasn't really been effective. Um, and so maybe Zardes is still, the best option up top for the U.S. So that was one big takeaway for me. I do think it's interesting that both in both the quarterfinal and the semifinal, the U.S. kind of took an approach where after this both games, Greg Berhalter talked about the the fact that both teams had a tendency to tire out toward the end of a game in the second half and that they kind of knew that about their opponent and they used the five subs to take advantage of that. I mean, we saw it with Qatar for sure in, in their nearly blowing multiple leads, um, late in games in this tournament. Yeah. And, and I think we definitely saw it last night too. I mean, they were the better team by far in the first half. They still had the momentum at the start of the second half. Then after that missed penalty, it was, I think, all the U.S. And part of it certainly was the momentum of that missed penalty. But I do think part of it was just. They don't rotate their squad a lot. Qatar. Yeah, they, and Qatar, they, Qatar was tired. They yeah, faded they were badly. Yeah, yeah and, they and, faded badly. And, and the U.S. Credit, took advantage. Credit to the U.S. for not, right? They were the fitter team, and they were the more well-rested team because of that rotation that you mentioned. And and like you said, they took advantage. But, Paul, I wanted to talk about one of the things that really kind of stuck out to me in the first half of this game, right? Before Qatar tired and before things got kind of wide open in the second half. And... That was sort of the play of the midfield and the buildup for the U.S. Uh, Kellen Acosta was pretty easily marked out of, of things in the first half. Qatar played with two forwards and they basically just sat on him and wouldn't let him get the ball. When he did get the ball, he wasn't really able to turn. He just had to knock it right back to a center back. It was a lot of side to side along the back four. It was very little direct play. The front three were pretty entire, pretty much entirely isolated. For the first half, they weren't really able to get on the ball in any meaningful way. And there wasn't much uh, dangerous or even like interesting possession for the Americans. Uh, Leggett and Busio, who were the two advanced midfielders, you know, they didn't do a ton to drop deep and kind of help Acosta um, and, and serve as an outlet. Um, and that was similar to what we saw against Jamaica, I thought. You know, and then Jamaica, there was a change right around the hour mark. Roldan came in for Ariola, and Busio started to drop deeper. Roldan kind of combined a little bit, played inside and outside. Shaq Moore advanced up the field. We didn't qu- quite see it like that exactly in in the Qatar game, just because things opened up and they didn't really need to play as deep. They didn't really need as much of an outlet. Things were going a little more direct against Qatar in the second half. Um, but it raises a question for me, Paul, and it's just kind of this entire formation. When you're playing with one defensive midfielder, this can happen, especially when those two number eights, like they were last night, aren't finding the space to be able to receive the ball. And so one of the things that Burhalter said after the game it sort of stuck out to me. He said, one of the plans was to keep a stable base of possession. We've got our fullbacks inside and then to move them around and try and tire them out. I think the problem in the first half was our attacking mids, meaning Leggett and Busio, weren't in the pockets enough and we didn't find them enough in dangerous positions to then activate the wingers and the forward behind the back line. When the subs came in, there was much more movement, much more threat to their back line. And it was a time when they were struggling, struggling physically. So, I don't know. I mean, I, I agree with what Burhalter said, but this is a problem to me that isn't really that new. And it's one that I think we could see carry over a little bit into qualifying and beyond. So it's one that I'm keeping an eye on. I'm curious what you think about it. 
Yeah, I mean, I I agree in some ways. I disagree in others. I think the U.S. team, when the full-strength squad is here, is going to play differently in who they're looking for in those pockets. When you have the full-strength U.S. team, the, the idea is going to be, especially with Serginio Des, whether he's on the left or the right, probably the left, I would say, is for him to get up the field and Christian Pulisic to come inside into that pocket of space and to tilt the field that way and look to find those two players especially. And I think that there is going to be more of an onus on midfielders like Weston McKinney or Tyler Adams or Eunice Musa, who we didn't see play in the Nations League, to carry the ball forward to break lines, right? To to relieve that pressure, to to beat a team man-marking you by carrying the ball forward. And there wasn't really anyone starting for the U.S. in midfield that was willing to do that or able yeah. to do that. And I thought one change that really helped that was by bringing in a player late. And again, as Greg Berhalter said, it's tough to judge because Qatar was so much more tired when they were gassed came in. completely. Yeah. But Eric Williamson, that's his strength. And I think he really did that well. He carried the mm-hmm. ball forward, pushed the game off the dribble, and that opened up those wingers and it opened up Reggie Cannon down the right side where they, the U S attacked a bunch. So that's going to be the key for the U S I think going forward with their a squad is that you need Tyler Adams and Weston McKinney to get on the ball and drive it forward. And I think that's Eunice Musa's biggest strength, I think. Um, So when he's playing, certainly that's a part of his plan as well. Um, But it's, I I don't think there's going to be, I think we've moved away for the most part with the a team from number six is kind of sitting and trying to dictate the play a little bit. And I, and I think that's where you really fall into that problem when you're looking for Kellen Acosta yeah. over and over and over again, and he's getting and, marked and he's, out and he's being marked by two guys. And we've seen it in the past too, right? They, it's been done when Michael Bradley's played there. It's been done I mean, when Jackson the Ule- played there. The Olympic team was a great example of that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, that, that to me, and, and by the way, another solution for that is to have a center back that will take the ball, carry it forward. So, you know, in the final, if we see a similar approach, I, I would imagine that you're going to, you're going to see James Sands being asked to carry the ball forward and, and then find that next pass, right? It can't always be the line breaking pass. Sometimes you yeah. have to carry it forward yeah. to open up the space. Um, and I, I actually think John Brooks is pretty good at that too. John Brooks is pretty good at getting on the yeah, ball he, and, he and carrying it forward. For, for me, it's, it's on the number eights primarily to to do a better job of finding the space i don't think they were very good at it last night with busio and legit there were times you know particularly towards the end of the first half where you could see them like being a little bit more conscious of it and trying it a little bit more um but it wasn't super effective so i think they need to be better of it because you know that mexico midfield with herrera and dos santos um it's going to be more of a test than what they had against qatar for sure uh and the u.s will go into that game on sunday as as underdogs i would imagine relatively significant underdogs although canada certainly gave mexico all they could handle uh in the semifinal so not saying there's not a chance but uh it's it's a more talented mexico squad there's a lot to learn from that canada game and and from the nations league final i think i think the most important thing in games against mexico is ratcheting ratcheting up the intensity and the U.S. hasn't had that out of the gates these last they, two They matches. haven't had that with this group yet. I haven't seen it. And that 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 doesn't mean they're not capable of it, right? Right. Like, Kellen Acosta was a part of that Nations League game, you know? No, and I think I think you started to see it in the second half. Yeah, for night, sure. For or sure. In the semifinal, starting with Acosta again and his sort of shenanigans with the penalty kick. Right. And, like, he, he has that ability. And I think the U.S. – I think that's what we saw last night in this Canada game. Like, you have to be able to increase the intensity – that in, that intensity kind of matches the pace of the game. And Mexico always plays at that pace. Mm-hmm. So I think in games where the U.S. has struggled, it's when they've come out trying to kind of play slowly and build out of the back and for multiple coaches. And in games where I think the U.S. has come out flying and tackling and shoving and talking trash and going back and forth, things have looked better. And... You know, I, I'm not saying that, I mean, like, I, I wasn't at the Gold Cup final a couple of years ago. My daughter was being, had just been born. Sam, you were there at the game, mm-hmm. but that was a, a one nothing game. And yeah. I, I think they had played, 
you know, they played that game against Mexico much better than they had the previous game against Mexico. And part of it was probably just the intensity of a final, right? Like of, of yeah. kind of stepping up in that moment. And, and I think that's what's really going to be needed here. You need, and that's why I'm interested to see how Greg Berhalter starts this team. I know I'm rambling a bit here and switching from side, but I, I no, think this no, is an important note. Like Jossie Zardes and Christian Roldan, Kellen Acosta, those guys are going to know that, right? They've been in these moments before. They understand what if it not, takes. If not on the international level, then certainly on the club level. In yeah. In those cases, yeah. And and I think um, I, I, I think with what Zardes and Roldan specifically have brought as substitutes the last two games, I asked Berhalter, like, at what point do you have to balance like putting the better players in the starting lineup versus right. getting just them the bounce? Right? To, to to give some context here, Berhalter was pretty open about how he started Daryl DK, who has struggled in this tournament, how he started him in the semifinal basically to show faith in him and to ke- keep giving him another chance. And not because he necessarily earned it based on his form, but because, you know, he wants to get him these big reps. And DK, again, struggled. And, you know, that's, I think, I think that's actually a laudable strategy by Berhalter. I would be shocked if we saw it again in the final, though. But that was his answer, right? To my question, which I thought was really interesting. And I think a credit, I think we have to recognize that when we talk about this tournament. I mean, Berhalter said about Zardes and Roldan starting over Busio and DK, essentially. Like, I, part of the reason that this, that we are in this tournament with this roster is to get these young guys games on the international level. And, and these guys have now had five games and we'll have six against Mexico, he said. And that really makes a difference to give them that international exposure. And so I think we have to, rem- sometimes I forget about the context. And that's kind of what I wrote about in my story is that this is kind of a parallel path tournament. The U.S. had to win. They had to keep winning games or else. USMNT Twitter was going to melt down, right? Oh, like Berhalter's the worst. He can't win the roster selection, <laughs> the blah, 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 blah. So like they had to still get results. But we also knew that the most important part of this tournament was identifying young players or not even necessarily young players, but identify players that could help the depth for a very, very congested World Cup qualifying schedule that starts in a month or so. And I think they've accomplished. I mean, I don't think they have accomplished both. And I, I just think it's noteworthy to say that Burhalter, even in the semifinal, was choosing players based on giving experience to younger guys who he thinks he might have to count on in the fall, in the spring, and maybe even in in 2022 in Qatar. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like you think he's going to do it again on Sunday. I, I don't know. I mean... No, make, the, the, make the a final, choice, Paul. I don't think so make because a, make for, a pick. <laughs> for two reasons. I don't think so because we've now seen DK start back-to-back games and this finals in three days. So I think Zardes will start up top for sure. Um, Busio, I feel similarly. Like I, I just think he hasn't done enough to show he deserves the start. I don't know whether it'll be Roldan who starts or Williamson. Mm-hmm. I would guess Williamson. For that reason. But Roldan has been impactful. And I just think Roldan gives you more options off the bench late in the game. He can come in for a winger. He can come in for a central midfielder. So that would be my guess that we'll see Zardes and Williamson start in the final and Roldan still coming off the bench. That sounds like a pretty good shout to me. Um, I don't, but I do have a follow-up. Ariola, you think he starts again? We could see Roldan inserted into the eleven in that spot. Yeah, I, I would not. I, I could definitely see that. I mean, I think, I just think Berhalter trusts Ariola a lot to do work, right? To do work, and not that he doesn't trust Roldan. I was going to say, I bet way, he trusts Roldan. But to in do the same a game thing. against Mexico, I think there's a value to the type of work that Ariola does specifically. You're going to be defending a lot in this game. I mean, Roldan does those same things. Yeah. (laughs) I I just think that Roldan gives you more flexibility off the bench. I I agree. I think he's made a really good impact in the last 30 minutes of the games. And I think he does that in a way that Ariola maybe wouldn't, right? Yeah, you you bring Ariola in to do what? To be vertical? To go vertical? Like, I think that's not as useful. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, I see where you're coming from. Um, I wouldn't mind if Roldan started. But, yeah, I think, I think Zardis will start. 
for sure, just because DK, he doesn't seem to have it. Um, he's, he's carrying what seems to be a little bit of a shoulder injury as well. I don't, I'm not really sure. Definitely. He's having some, he, he had a brace on last it. night on his shoulder. I noticed that it was coming out from under the sleeve at one point. Yeah. Um, Sam, I've got a, a really important question for you. Oh boy. When is the last time you connected with or identified with a men's national team player as strongly as you do with Matthew Hoppy? Wow. Um, I feel like I don't identify with him at all. <laughs> how how could you not? The swagger, the 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 confidence. I mean, he I'm is not carrying that, the piano not for everyone confident. out there. Hey, that's not a. That's not a. You don't know what piano carrying means. I don't think if you think that's p- piano oh, carrying. Yeah, it's the same He's way. Playing. It's the same way that you think piano carrying is. That's I, what I think. I don't know. I think your definition is wrong and my definition is right. Do I identify with Matthew Hoppy? Uh, maybe a little bit of the feistiness, sure. Uh, but no, I, I mean, I don't have that level of confidence. No, I'm comfortable saying that. On a, on a real level, though, what is your take <laughs> on Matthew Hoppy? Is what I really wanted to get to. I mean, like, what is my take on Matthew Hoppy? The main take is like what I just said, confidence. Like, that dude has confidence. Is it earned confidence? I'm not really sure. Probably not. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> and and not I think yet. that's, I think maybe that's you were go- where you were going with that comparison, which, you know, I'm going to be frank. I resent. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he, he's done some good things, right? Particularly against Jamaica. He did some good things. Uh, he played an incredible ball to Daryl DK last night that should have probably been an assist. Um, see, now that's what I'm talking about with piano carrying. That's like, what happens when you serve me up with stuff and I can't yeah, score? Right. You know, that's like that's, that's what I'm talking about. That's a good point. Uh, yeah, keep trying to save yourself, Paul. I know what you were trying to do. You can't <laughs> fool me. Um, I'm. I would like to see him play as a striker for the U.S. at some point, which is the position that he pay, plays most often for his club. Um, you know, we've only really seen him on the wing for the U.S. So, um, I like his confidence. I like his attitude. I like his willingness to try things. You know, to paraphrase the old Bruce Arena quote about Clint Dempsey, um, I think the reaction to kind of his performances and, oh, my God, this guy is like the truth or this guy was man of the match, like against Jamaica. No, like that confidence has a downside. Like he tried to sombrero somebody like on the edge of the defensive third against Jamaica and then he turned it over and it led to an incredible chance. Like he does some dumb stuff, too. And, you know, he's young and he's very confident and he will learn and he will develop and he will refine his game. So I'm not like overly worried about it. But, you know, he puts you in some problem spots, too. Uh, So, yeah, that's that's my thoughts. He's young. He'll figure it out. I I think it'll be good for him, actually, to be in the second Bundesliga with Schalke and to play a lot of games, I think. Maybe. Yeah. But maybe he doesn't. Maybe he gets maybe 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 he gets bought. Maybe he gets moved. I got to say, I think I'm most excited to see him against Mexico. Because yeah. he's going to match that energy, yeah, like for, for sure. sure. Um, we know what Acosta is going to do. We've seen that before. We haven't seen it with Hoppy, and I think it's going to be I don't know, though. I kind of like like Hoppy last night when things were getting a little chippy at one point. He was like in the scrum, and he like I saw him like drop a couple like, you know, trash talking moments. And then like when things started to look like they were going to get chippy, kind of walk away with that smirk on his face. And I was like, yeah, we all know that guy. Oh, that's yeah. me for sure. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, I think it's most people, it's most people, you but know, that, that's, stir, what, that's what like, I want. up and then go, what? I didn't do it. Yeah. Anything. Like, what are you talking about? I'm out of here. I'm out. Yeah. Kellen, Kellen handle this for me. You know, yeah. um, I like it. I like it. You need somebody like it that does it. By the way, Greg Berhalter shown some personality last night, maybe in ways that he regretted in a way that he apologized for after the game. But he was all up in the fourth official's face after the USA score. You can't forget. You can't forget. Burhalter's from Jersey, man. Some of that Jersey's going to come out every once in a while. You know, you can you can take the guy out of Jersey. Can't take the Jersey out of the guy. Um, let's zoom out a little bit. Uh, we've talked a lot about the Qatar game in particular. We'll talk more about it, but let's talk. You know, let's talk stock up, stock down, Paul. Let's hit the market. We're going bulls and bears at Wall Street and. And Dogecoin, man. It's been a while Who's since we talked you? about Doge on this show. Yeah, the Doge father. Um, who has impressed you from this from this group, from this tournament, um, in a way that you think will lead them to a, a bigger role in World Cup qualifying? Well, I think the person who I who probably is right now in my mind 
is starting a game in September that probably wasn't before this tournament is Miles Robinson. Yeah. I think Miles Robinson has earned himself the starting job at the center back position next to John Brooks pending the start of the Bundesliga season, right? Like if Chris Richards is playing at Hoffenheim and playing really well, I think he'll be given a chance to start as well. But there there are three games in September. So yeah, I, I think I think we can say for sure Miles Robinson's on the plane, which yeah. oh, I don't no, think we no could doubt. say for sure before no doubt this he's tournament. on the plane. Yeah. No doubt he's on the plane. So I, I would start there. I think James Sands is is um now put put himself right in the mix for a job. He struggled against Qatar. It was not a good game. Yeah. And then Matt Turner, obviously, but I mean the question is like, what do you say about Matt Turner? Is he going to unseat Zach Steffen for the number one role? I don't know. I would say why, no. Why, why not? I would say no. Why not? I just don't see it happening. That's why. Why? I, I just don't see it happening. Well, you have to have a reason. No, I don't. I mean, Zach Steffen is the number one. And until <laughs> yes, he, you do. You have Zach, to have a reason. Zach Steffen is the number one. <laughs> and until he does something to lose the number one job, I don't think that Matt Turner, you know, playing well in the Gold Cup is was is going to unseat Zach Steffen. Well, I mean, I don't know. That's a weird way to think of it, in my opinion. I've just, I, that's just, I mean, this is my opinion. I'm not the one making the decision. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't think Matt Turner will start ahead of Zach Steffen in September. Do you think Matt Turner will start ahead of Zach Steffen in September? I don't know the answer to that question, but I think that I would, if I was Greg Berhalter, I would really be thinking about it, right? Consider this. Zach Steffen, he's going to be the backup at Manchester City again. Most likely, he will not have played a game between when he left the Nations League final injured and the first qualifier against El Salvador on September 2nd. Matt Turner will have had a full summer of work with the Revs and with the USMNT. He's a very good shot stopper. Everyone knows this. Everyone talks about him. The knock on Turner is like, oh, his decision-making uh, on when to come out is sometimes a little shaky. We saw that a little bit the, against the, the second save that everyone was talking about yeah, Probably should have attacked we, that ball hanging saw, in the air. We saw it a little bit against Qatar. And so I, I'm, I hear that. And then the other thing is like, well, you know, he's not quite that great with the ball at his feet. Which, okay, fair enough. To that second point, I would say that Stefan's not so great with the ball at his feet either. You know, we've seen him make big airs with the ball at his feet for, U, for the U.S. And I know he's developed since then, I would hope, right? Training with Manchester City every day, you probably get better at that sort of thing. Um, but it's not like he's Ederson back there, right? Like, it's not like he's like adding a ton of value as some ball playing goalkeeper. So, you know, the main, the main thing that a goalkeeper does is, is make saves, <laughs> you know? And if Turner is doing that better than Zach Steffen, and I don't know that he is, and I don't know what they're going to look like in training when the time comes, and I don't know where Ethan Horvath fits into all of this and what his role is going to be at Nottingham Forest, where he just signed. But I would think that if I was Burhalter, if I was the head coach of the U.S. men's national team, it'd be a pretty open competition for me at this point. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's not an open competition. I'm just saying I don't think that – I don't know that anyone else will be starting besides Zach Steffen. And, and I, I think it's worth – I haven't gone back and looked at the stats, and maybe this is something we write ahead of that first round of qualifying games. But the U.S. hasn't given up a lot of goals in general. You know, it's not like Zach Steffen is leaking goals for the U.S. MNT when he's been playing. So that's the other thing. It's like we have I think to, the context is to, important, man. The U.S. has not played strong teams. Sure. Like, and that's and that's not really a fault of anybody's. Like, that's just kind of the way the scheduling has worked. But they haven't played strong teams for the most part in a, in quite some time. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I certainly think he's helped his stock. If we're going stock up, stock down. Mm -hmm. Matt Turner, stock up. Shaq Moore, stock up. At the yeah. deepest position in the pool, Shaq Moore somehow <laughs> fought his way into the picture. Yeah. No, I've been impressed with him. Um, I I sort of tapped the brakes a little on him, I think, when we talked about this after game one against Haiti. Um, but no, he's been solid all tournament. And Reggie Cannon hasn't really been missed, I don't think. Um, so, yeah, he's been solid. I think he's right in that mix, too. You mentioned Miles Robinson already. He's a, he's a big one for me. Um, I think Roald on. Another big one. Um, I don't know that he makes the qualifying roster, but if you want, like, you know, somebody who's a little bit of a Swiss Army knife and can do several different jobs for you and is going to work hard and be a good teammate and you have an expanded roster, I wouldn't entirely rule it out either. Um, so, yeah, that, I think that's about it for me for, 
for significant stock up in this tournament. What do you think? Are we missing anybody? Yeah, I mean, I would say like for significant stock up, that's probably where it ends. I, I think certain guys have kind of helped themselves kind of stay in the mix. Like Hoppy's a good example of that, where he'll kind of be in the conversation. I, I don't think he unseats Christian Pulisic or Brendan Aronson, and I don't think he's going to push his way past Josh Sargent yet at the number nine. Giacchini, same thing. But, you know, we're already starting to see some of these injuries that are popping up, right? Yunus Musa yep. picked up an injury in preseason starting for Valencia. That's going to keep him out three weeks on the best optimistic side, maybe as long as six weeks. So these are the things that are going to start to happen. And so maybe Christian Roldan does sneak onto a roster, you yeah. know, because of an injury like that. Um, and that's what's been important about this tournament. You know, the guys that have gone stock up that we mentioned, the guys who have helped their case that, okay, I'm right here on the depth chart and we don't need to look elsewhere. Um, and then, yeah, you, I think you've stocked down. We have to acknowledge there are guys that I think have kind of played their way out of the picture for now. Jackson Ewell, who we haven't seen since early in the tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, Donovan Pines, who I don't think we'll see in a U.S. national team jersey for a while. Um, it, that was a weird call up to me in the first place. Yeah. But. And I mean, I think, look, there's an acknowledgement of that and that he hasn't dressed for the last two games. Um, and then, you know, I would say also, you know, when we're talking about stock up, stock down, like I think, um, what did I say? I said Jackson, you will Donovan Pines. I know I'm missing one guy who I think DK. Yeah. I would say DK stock probably dropped a little bit. I would say it probably dropped a little bit, but it dropped I, but, from this like this weird yeah. place that it that it was in. It was not like I don't know that it dropped in Greg Berhalter's mind as much as it right. dropped in the mind of the fan base. Yeah, the striker, there's always a massive overreaction, right? Good and bad after every single game, <laughs> right? And it's just like who performed well, who didn't? Did anyone perform well? Zardis has performed well. Uh, the last two times he's been out on the field. We, we talked about that already. Um, but I think all of these guys are somewhat similar in terms of their overall impact and quality at this point. And it's just kind of like who's in form and who isn't. And right now DK isn't. And I think that's kind of what we see. So yeah, I think, I think that makes sense. I'm trying to think if we're, if there's anybody else that, that we're leaving out, but yeah, that's, I think that's about it, right? I mean, Walker Zimmerman, I thought was pretty good and doing a decent job, um, sort of cementing a center back role before he got hurt. And that was unfortunate for him for a number of reasons. Um, but we'll see how long that injury takes. It didn't seem like a long term thing. So maybe he'll be back in the mix come September. All right. With that, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with some MLS chatter after the break. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think... 
I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. Paul just told me he wants to choke someone right now. So that's the energy we're bringing to this segment of the podcast. Uh Sorry for airing your dirty laundry like that. No, you're not. You are. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry at all. I don't know why. I don't know why you're feeling that kind of way, but you know, hopefully you can bring some intensity, some Chaka Rodriguez intensity to this segment. I can't believe you didn't use your joke from Twitter last night. Oh, more like Choka Rodriguez. All right, you guys. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no? Okay. Crickets. Got it. Cool. I will never apologize. Um, moving on. <laughs> Getting past that awkward start to this segment. We just finished talking about national team. We just finished talking about Gold's Cup. We are moving back into the world of Major League Soccer. We've talked a little bit about this on a previous show and the situation going on with the San Jose Earthquakes. Some more details have emerged since we last spoke about it. They are still looking for a general manager. I spoke to their COO, Jared Shawley, and their technical director, Chris Leitch, earlier this week, wrote a piece on those conversations on The Athletic. Basically, here, here's, the, here's the highlights. Uh, they're looking domestic for their general manager. They're looking for somebody who is either working in the league or has extensive experience in the league and a knowledge of it. Uh, that's obviously quite the departure for them from where they were previously. Jesse Fiorinelli, who was fired on June 29th, had no prior experience in MLS, and it showed with the kinds of roster moves that he made. He basically completely neglected the market for MLS players. I think he only acquired three from other MLS teams in his four and a half years in charge in San Jose, which is kind of an astoundingly low number. So they're looking for domestic. Uh, I've been told that Will Kuntz, the LAFC assistant GM, is is somebody who's been mentioned as a candidate. Chris Leitch is a candidate as well. They have a short list of four to five. They haven't reached out to any of them besides Leitch, of course, um, but they will start interviewing once the secondary transfer window ends on August 5th and they hope to have a hire in place in September. So that's kind of the roadmap for them. They are also working with Sportsology, which is a consulting firm. They're going to assist in the search and the hire, and they're also going to do some additional consulting work after the hire is made to help San Jose build out kind of their sports department. Anyway, that's a long, a long kind of explanation of where things stand. Let's get a little bit more into our opinions. Paul, how would you fix the San Jose Earthquakes? Well, I think that they are, they probably, if you look around the league, the the club that is most similar to San Jose is the Colorado Rapids. You've got... In terms of? In terms of, you have an academy capable of producing a couple homegrown contributors. We've seen that in Colorado. I think Cade Cowell is showing that in San Jose, but it's not up to speed to be what Dallas has been or... Right you know, Philadelphia, right? And so, and then you also have a wealthy owner who's unwilling to spend at high levels, right? They both have that going for them too. And so I think that the best route is to do what Colorado has done. Shop hard in the domestic market and try to supplement that with a couple homegrown off-budget players. And and I think certainly with a few you know, one or two decent international signings. You know, it doesn't have to be overly complicated. It doesn't have to be, you know, based on a crazy good scouting network or an incredible academy. It puts a lot of responsibility on having a good sporting director with a strong understanding of Major League Soccer on that market and its rules. And I think a devotion to scouting the league. And knowing where the deals are, knowing where the good players are. And as you noted, 
you know, because Colorado doesn't have a ton of players that are above the max budget charge or even on higher budget charges, they don't have to use their allocation money or a lot of it to buy cap numbers down. And so instead, they use their allocation money to buy players. They use it as a transfer fund within the league. And I think that's probably the model for San Jose if I'm running it. And I think for whoever gets hired, that's kind of where you focus is is taking advantage of the domestic market, making trades and um and and yes, still trying to identify one or two players abroad who can help you, but but a much stronger focus domestically. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would also add in add in something else on the international market, and that's what kind of Philadelphia has been able to do, which is go into different areas that are not so hot so to speak. German lower divisions, Philadelphia keeps going to Venezuela, Cameroon, scouting the hell out of those areas and finding some gems there that don't cost you as much as a comparable player in a bigger, more attractive, more desirable league. Um, I think that's a good way to build on a budget. And I think those that's kind of the path forward for these teams that don't spend a ton of money, right? You, you can't just do one thing. You got to lean in. You got to lean in a direction for sure. Right, but you have to hit the academy, you have to hit the domestic market, and I think you have to find diamonds in the rough on the international market. And the margin for error for that is low, right? It's a hard job, right? And it's why you don't see a ton of low budget teams succeed year in, year out in MLS. Uh, it's not an easy thing to pull off, but it's not impossible. Well, if your your ceiling is kind of the Colorado Rapids, right? So it's not like a great. Huh. model why, like why can't it be the philadelphia union because your academy is not up to speed yet like well, until you get well, your academy sure to that point. It, it's not going to be that next year but it could be that down the road sure. it, it, yeah, it, yeah 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 I'm, I'm putting aside they've invested serious money in the philadelphia academy so like if they mm-hmm. pivot and they start to invest serious money in the san jose academy the ceiling changes but if yeah. you don't the ceiling is the colorado rapids which you'll be competitive Right, they've been competitive under Robin. And, and by the way, the, the Ra- since they pivoted, I don't want to there. undersell the Rapids Academy because they've put a lot into that. Too. Yeah, and they've done and, a good and, job. Like, and I, they're getting production. And, yeah. and but they're earlier in that phase, right? They're yes. on their way there. So that's what I'm saying. Is like in the early phase of it, that is your ceiling, right? And like, right, it's because it's hard. You know, it's like oh, like like <laughs> like oh, like, let's go find some good budget players, like. That, that help contribute. Yeah, everyone's trying to do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, if it was that easy, then everybody would do it, right? Um, it requires you to work and to be better at it than other people. But it also requires you to kind of just have the vision. And what San Jose hasn't had is that vision, right? They, like, they have a strategy, right? It's Matias Almeida. Like, that's their strategy. And like, that's like, okay, th- that guy is how we're going to punch above our weight and his unique tactics and his knowledge of players that he's worked with in the past and so on and so forth. And what we've seen is that Matias Almeida at the level of spending that the Quakes are at has a pretty set ceiling and it's like bubble team in the West, right? And like, that's not great. And, and that sort of just like leads to the question that I have and that a lot of people I spoke to had, which is like, what exactly are they trying to achieve out there? Because it just sort of feels like they're floating along and that they don't really care on an ownership level all that much. And that sustained mediocrity, which is what they've been at best, right? That's maybe being a little charitable. Sustained mediocrity, which is what they've been since they re-entered the league in 2008, is just fine with them, right? And so it's just like a weird job in that sense. I don't know that there are that many clubs that you could put into that category. Maybe Houston, but they have new ownership now. Right, so maybe that's changing. Um, I wouldn't put Chicago in that category, right? They've been more ambitious. They've just been bad, and so it's just kind of San Jose, Colorado was there, but they've changed things up, and I don't know. Like it's going to require someone who is really good in that CSO role to get this thing turned around. Yeah, I mean, I just think um, the strategy has to be built initially around rebuilding the core of that roster and identifying undervalued players in MLS that can help you immediately that aren't, they're not going to take you to being like a challenger in the Western conference, but they'll get you to a place where you can start to build the more important pieces around, around that. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it, it's not, it's not easy, but I think it is the easiest path. I think it's easier to identify players who, you know, what you're getting in major league soccer 
than it is to identify players in the global market, which is an enormous market yeah. with it takes a lot more resources, a lot more time. And there's a lot more, t- there's just a lot more variables. Yeah, right? way more variables, way more risk, right? So, um, yeah, I, I think that's why they're looking more domestically. I think they recognize that their path to being more consistently in the mix is domestic based. And they had a, a sporting director who didn't have knowledge of the domestic market, good enough knowledge of the domestic market, and certainly didn't take advantage of the domestic market, even after he had established himself in the league for several years. And I I also think it's notable what you wrote in your story, Sam, which is that, you know, because they're tied so strongly to Matias Almeida right now, and the fact that Almeida still has one more year left on his contract, it really becomes a an interesting dynamic at the end of this year where you have to decide what you're going to do because you can't really rebuild this roster with all of these contracts coming up at the end of the season in the mold of a Matias Almeida team and then not bring Matias Almeida back one year in later. In 2023. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So the decision has to happen, you know, at the end of this year, basically. Pretty much. And I don't know what that decision is going to be. And I don't know if the GM is going to have final say on it. Right. I asked Jared Shawley kind of that question in those terms, right? Like, Hey, a lot of the rosters up, but Matias is out after 22. Do you want to have clarity one way or another, you know, at the end of this year? And he basically told me, he said, I'm pulling up the quote right now. So give me, give me one moment. You know, their view is that he's one of the top coaches in MLS and this is a quote, he's got a close relationship with our ownership group, and I'm sure all of those decisions about the future will happen in the appropriate time after we've made the playoffs in 2021 and had a successful season. I'm not so sure about that last part. It's not looking great right now. There is a lot of time left. They can turn it around. I'm not ruling it out, but uh, it's not looking overwhelmingly positive on that front. So I, I don't know. I would say that it's a, and I, I wrote this, but it's a massive indictment on San Jose that they, they don't have an identity at all as a club beyond just like simply being a little bit below average, like all the time. Right. And that's sad. That's not a good thing. And that's impossible to succeed like that. If you are a low budget team in MLS in 2021 and the good thing for them is that I think they, they recognize that a little bit and that they're committed to bringing in somebody in this hire that's going to change that. Right. So I think that's positive. And then the other positive is that this is a pretty blank canvas for whoever arrives, right? The fact that they don't have an identity and they don't have any real direction that they've gone in, like, means that, you know, it's pretty easy to pick one. You don't have to really reverse course if there is no course to begin with, right? So I think maybe they can they can start building quickly and kind of hit the ground running. I'm not saying that's going to make the Quakes one of the best teams in the league in 2022 or anything like that. Um, but... I don't think there's a lot of barriers necessarily, if that makes sense. By the way, I don't think they're wrong in saying that Matias Almeida is one of the better coaches in MLS. He he has been a very effective coach in the right clubs, and he is a really well-regarded coach. Yeah, that and his players seem to really like they him. They really like him. He's created a culture yeah. there. But if you're going to have Matias Almeida as your coach, and you're going to run that man-marking system – you better be committed to buying the players that fit the system to do it well. Up yeah. and down the roster. One through 23, right? You you need players who are going to be quality players in that system, whether they're starters or not. And that requires a higher level of spending than San Jose is willing to commit. I think because Almeida has certain players that he knows and likes and thinks fit the system. And yeah. typically those players come from abroad and typically that means they include transfer fees and that drives up the cost. That being said, a good example of a move that would be effective more often for San Jose is Eric Rometty trade from Atlanta. Yeah. Identifying a player who's already in MLS where you're eliminating some of the transaction costs, you're eliminating the timeline it takes to adjust to the country, to adjust to a new culture, to adjust to a new league, and you're finding that player in MLS and you're bringing them in that that fits the system. Um, 
So I'm not if saying only, it's if impossible. only there were more former Almeida players on other <laughs> MLS teams. <laughs> My point is being that, you know, I think it's difficult. I'm not trying to say that. I'm not trying to discredit Almeida. I just think that um, he might not be the right fit for that club. Yeah. I mean, anymore. you they don't really pay anybody that much. Cristiano Espinosa is their highest paid guy, slightly over a million. But then you look at the next three, Andy Rios, Carlos Fierro, uh, Chofis, Oswaldo Alanis. Those guys, they're not getting enough from those guys, you know? And it's not to say that you can't play a successful and style or win, win games with the style that Almeida plays. I think you can, um, but they're not getting enough from the guys that they are spending money on. So kind of be interesting to see where they take it. Paul, let's take a quick break. We'll come back after the break. There was a big trade in MLS this week. Let's talk about it. We'll break it down. Um, maybe look ahead towards the last week of the summer window as well. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back to Allocation Sorter. Paul. Do you feel that? I don't know. Do you feel it? What is it? It's the temperature. Oh, it's it, rising. Is it heating up? Think, things are heating up in the MLS summer transfer window, which ends on August 5th. We had a few pretty significant moves this week. Uh, Mark Anthony K traded to the Colorado Rapids from LAFC for $1 million in allocation money, a 2022 international slot. Colorado receiving a first-round pick. I think in next year's draft, I can't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> a lot of show prep went into this one, folks, um, in exchange for him, but that pick isn't super valuable. Anyhow, uh, interesting trade. Kay had been a key part of every single LAFC team, joining before their expansion season from Louisville City. He's currently with Canada at the Gold Cup. Well, actually no longer with Canada at the Gold Cup after they were eliminated last night, but he played a big role for them. He was very good, I thought, in the game against Mexico for Canada. Um, and joins a Colorado team that has played solid soccer all season. He'll team up with Kellen Acosta and Jack Price in midfield. Cole Bassett, another option in there, as is Eunice Nomley, though he's currently injured and has spent some time out on the wing 
for the Rapids. Uh, LAFC lose an important player, but it's in a position of strength for them, or, or they feel it is anyhow. And it's a lot of money as well, which can't be undersold. It's going to allow them to go out and make, you know, or help them make another signing at number nine of Colombian forward Christian Arango. That deal is expected to get done here shortly. Paul, this was a big deal. You don't often see seven-figure allocation money fees being traded in MLS. What did you think of it? Yeah, I thought it was a – I think on the surface it's a good trade for both sides. I feel like from the selling side especially, when you get this type of offer for a player at a position where you have the level of depth that LAFC has, you reach kind of no-brainer territory. And especially when you factor in that Mark Anthony Kay is going to need a new contract and you start to do some math on the budget – where you're going to allocate your money and the signings that you need to be bringing in, it starts to fit a little bit better. I was speaking with somebody who scouts Major League Soccer intensively, and his belief was that Mark Anthony Kay has been a much more inconsistent player for LAFC over the last two seasons. And so when you add when you add that into the equation i think it became an even easier decision for lafc to make that move and i think bob bradley kind of acknowledged that when he talked about mark anthony k being aware that other teams were interested in him and maybe knowing that that was the better path as well that this was kind of an all parties recognizing now is the time to go our own ways or to to move on from each other in a way so I like the move from LAFC. Colorado, I think, has to hope that Mark Anthony K can be consistently one of the better midfielders in the league as he was a couple years ago. But I, I, I also like the fact that he's not being brought in to be the guy. Like he's joining a midfield, as you noted, that has quality players around him, where he's partnering with the with Kellen Acosta, and so he's being brought in as a piece. Whereas, like, if you look at Julian Gressel, for example, Julian Gressel was, like, a really good third or fourth option with Atlanta, who was a complimentary piece, and he struggled a bit when he was asked to be the guy in D.C. That's well, not the when case when Edison here. Flores wasn't the guy that they thought he was going to be last year, to be fair to but, Gressel. For sure, but there yeah. also was pressure on Gressel to be more of the guy than he had to be in Atlanta, yeah. right? And for sure. So, that's not the case here. So, that's why I like this deal all the way around. It's a, It's a rich deal, but... For for Colorado, that doesn't really matter because this is probably the highest transfer fee you're paying for a guy for a while. <laughs> so Yeah, exactly. So that's the thing that I wanted to kind of point out a little bit more explicitly. Colorado has one of the lowest budgets in the league. I think they're 22nd or 3rd in payroll as of April 15th. And because of that, they don't really have to spend allocation money buying down salaries in the same way as a team like LAFC does, for instance, that spends a lot of money on payroll. They can instead kind of reserve some of that allocation money and use it as a transfer fund, right? And that's what they did here. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a good move for them. They aren't going to go out and buy Mark Anthony K or a player like Mark Anthony K on the international market. They're not going to have the budget to do something like that from ownership, right? And so this is the way that they can acquire players of quality and they use the tools at their disposal, I think, in an effective way. So I agree with a lot of what you said about LAFC, but, but Paul, they haven't been overwhelming this year. They are in fifth place in the West, one point behind the fourth place Rapids, as a matter of fact. Um, the Rapids have played two fewer games than LAFC, by the way, only a plus three goal differential. They, uh, gave up a 95th minute equalizer against Minnesota at home the other night. Uh, that definitely didn't feel good. I hear what you're saying about K being inconsistent the last couple of years. I agree with it. Uh, I think when he's at his best, he can be super, super impactful, but there are plenty of games when he's not there. Um, so my question is, LAFC is still looking for that first MLS Cup. This move doesn't necessarily help them achieve that, right? At what point, you know, I don't know. Like, is, is it weird to you for them to trade an impactful player while they're still chasing? Maybe it does help them, right? They're signing a, a striker from Columbia. Yeah. Who's coming in using allocation money. They're up against the budget. We know that they've signed a lot of players from abroad, a lot of players that need, maybe they needed this 
one million dollars to fit yeah. this player under the budget. That's the problem here. Got a raise. Yeah, with why not having details <laughs> for Major League Soccer as to cap situations makes it impossible yeah. to have really educational, in-depth conversations about trades like this, where we could inform the fan base. This is why a move was being done and this is why it makes sense. It becomes much harder because Major League Soccer doesn't make any of that information available. So whereas we could have a very in-depth conversation about how the cap situation might be changing for the Washington <laughs> Nationals as they fire sale at the They're trade deadline for Major League Baseball. The Cubs are too, man. The conversation we can have doing? about LAFC is much more limited. Why would we want conversations about these teams and these trades to be you know, extensive or elaborate or to create conversations among fan bases about who might fit or why they might fit. Why would we want to drive that sort well, because, of interest into because these then we, teams? We, if we had that, we couldn't complain about it, yeah, about it's, not having you know, it's it. It's just too bad that we're, you know, we're, we're going to do one segment on this show and we're going to have a couple minutes conversation. We're going to speculate as best we can. And then yeah. we're going to move on. And that'll be the end of that talk. And the fans can stop speculating and stop wondering and, there's no conversation about who might come next. And, you know, that's positive for the league. That's good for Keep the going. league. You know, let's, we need end, another minute let's on end these conversations yeah. as fast as we can if we're Major League Soccer. We we have a big enough audience as it is. The <laughs> soccer going. sells itself. He's still going. <laughs> the soccer sells itself. Uh, Paul, I, I got to say, I've heard you make that same rant so many times that I tuned out about 10 seconds in and then I like started listening again 30 seconds later and I was like, wow, he's like still talking about this. <laughs> and then you went for two more minutes. So impressive endurance on I that I told one. you I wanted to choke somebody today. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. I want to end the show just with that, but we have a couple of other things to talk about. <laughs> um. Austin FC they made a big move earlier this week they signed the third DP Sebastian Drusi from Zenit St. Petersburg Argentine 25 year old attacker I believe he had 24 goals and 22 assists in a shade over 100 games for Zenit in four years over there prior to that he played for River Plate in Argentina Um, we'll see how he turns out in MLS he's certainly got a good pedigree he's got good numbers he can play on the wing he can play as a striker he's not like the out and out nine that Austin really needs still but he can play in the middle uh so we'll we'll see they they've had a hard time scoring goals they haven't had a hard time building up right they've played some good stuff in midfield but once they get into that final third they're having a hard time putting the ball away they're tied for last in MLS with Miami with just 10 goals this season so not very good they'll be hoping he can help out Paul, interesting thing here. Austin now has all three of their DP spots filled and all three of their U22 spots filled. They noted that in their press release. Shout out to Transparency. Thank you, Austin. Um, They're one of, I don't know the exact number because not all teams are this transparent, but I would imagine only a handful of MLS teams to have all three DPs and all three U22 spots filled, um, which I think is notable. So, any thoughts on Drusi? Any thoughts on that that other part of the, the the signing that that I just mentioned there? Sorry, did you say you didn't know because of lack of transparency? Mm-hmm. Is that what you said? Yeah, that oh, is what I said. Okay. Just was checking. Are you going to choke me? I just thought you know it was an opening to rant again about the lack of transparency in Major League. <laughs> but all right, um, you know what's interesting to me about Sebastian Drusi that I'm I'm intrigued to see how he transitions to Major League Soccer. Is that Inter Miami pursued Sebastian Drusi for a decent amount of time before we saw a pretty, you know, dramatic shift in strategy halfway through their season? We sure um, did. Or at least according to reports, there were reports, I think, in South America and coming out of Argentina that Inter Miami was engaged significantly in, in talks with Sebastian Drusi. Um, instead, obviously, they ended up signing Gonzalo Higuain. So I, I'm interested to see. Um, how Drusi translates to this league. I agree with you that, you know, Austin really just needs someone who can finish. And, you know, is Drusi an out and out number nine? No. But could he be a guy who, who's goal dangerous for them? Yes. Um, and I think Austin's done a nice job in their first year of roster building. You know, it's, it's hard to, to put a team together in one offseason and, you know, I always say this about expansion teams. Like, I think if you're doing a, a decent to good job as a general manager, you're getting somewhere around 50% of your signings right. And during a typical offseason, you're probably signing three or four guys. So if you get 50% wrong, you missed on two. As long as they're not DPs, that's okay. 
Um, when you're putting 30 players on a roster together and you're missing on 50%, that's 15 guys that you need to try to replace or fix the next year. And that's why it usually, usually takes two or three years to get a team up to speed. I think Austin's probably hitting on more, slightly more than 50% of their signings, right? I, that's a good start. They haven't been good, man. I think it's They're a good last start in the West. on a roster. I think it's a good start on a roster. Like I think that in the next window, the fixes that they have to make aren't super drastic. They, they need to score goals, right? Yeah. And if they can start doing that in a sustainable way, then this looks a lot better really quickly. Uh, that's a hard thing to do, right? But Jersey should help them do that. I'm never, <laughs> so. I'm never shocked by expansion teams struggling in year one for this reason. I always look at it that at, that the most. It's hard to say the the most important window because obviously that first window or so when you sign the vast majority of players for your first season is incredibly important. You're signing a whole bunch of people, but that January window after your first season is so crucial to building an expansion roster because it's where you can make adjustments, where you can course correct. And if you mess that window up, you're setting yourself back even further. And and so I, I always kind of wait until that second January to start to have anything approaching expectations around an expansion team. Yeah, fair enough. I can't really disagree with any of that. Um, I think Austin got a lot of credit early in the season because they were playing some decent soccer. They've fallen off a lot since then. Um, But they're still playing some okay soccer. They're just not scoring. They're not putting the ball in the back of the net because they don't have a striker. Who could have predicted this? Um, So we'll see. Maybe Juicy helps him out. In other potential news, Tiago Almada, Argentine Olympic squad most recently, Looks like he's on the way to Atlanta United for a large, large, large transfer fee, maybe $15 million, uh, depending on reports. I mean, it seems like a good move, but it's wild to me that Arthur Blank is cool with the current regime throwing $15 million at another player after the last couple of seasons that they've had. <laughs> um, but more power to him, man. Um it's it's cool that they're doing it for the league. Um, I'm not sure I would trust them to do it if I was the owner, but they're they're going out there and they're trying to pull it off. So we'll see we'll see if they get it over the line. Orlando also linked with another young 21 year old Argentine from River Plate whose name I am blanking on right now, but uh, Alvarez. He was in the Copa America squad. Um, Julian Alvarez. There we go. Sorry about that. Um, so we'll see. Maybe maybe new ownership down there makes a big, big early splash, potentially. 21 years old in the Copa America squad um, from River. So This is what young money does to the league. And I, I, I agree with the tactic of if you're going to spend big money on a young money player, let him be 21. As close to the border of under 22 initiative as possible where you have a little bit more to look at in his pro career. Just try to mitigate the risk a little bit. Yeah, and the resale value. Everyone's trying to buy young. So it is what it is. Also, some some breaking news, Paul. Oh, boy. From what I am told. Well, I'll just save it for Twitter. Wow. Never mind. Thanks for listening to Allocation Disorder. I'm Sam. He's Paul. Until next time. <laughs>